The Deal with Yield is a podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. Tune in to episodes on iTunes, My Farm Radio, and thedealwithyield.com. Welcome to The Deal with Yield with our host, Joel Whipperfirth, Winfield United Ag Technology Applications Lead. And joining us today is Mark Glady, Winfield United Regional Agronomist, to share tips for optimizing herbicide applications and preventing resistance. Mark, how can farmers ensure they're getting the most out of their applications? Yeah, you know, it's not about how many ounces of Roundup you can put out there or how high rate of dicamba can I go. It's not just about what rate per acre. It's more about how much active ingredient actually gets into the plant. A lot of people would be incredibly amazed at how small amount of actual glyphosate acid, how much Roundup it actually takes to kill a weed. The hard part is how do I make sure I have the right water conditioner to soften my water to make sure that as much of my glyphosate stays active as possible in the tank without being deactivated because we know hard water cations like calcium, iron, magnesium, sodium, they all have positive charges. Glyphosate has a negative charge. No, they're not going to make cottage cheese if they react, but you will deactivate some of the activity of your herbicide. Okay, so we got to keep it active in the spray tank. Once it goes out with assuming the right nozzle, you know, we know if you have a flat fan nozzle, going back to some of our laser data, we know that the flat fan nozzle, at, even at 40 pounds of pressure, you can have upwards of 30% of your spray solution as 150 or under 200 micron sized droplets. That is considered a driftable fine. If 30% of your spray is not even making it to the target, there's another way that we don't get the effectiveness out of our crop protection product. Once a spray drop, it lands on the surface of the leaf. The herbicide, insecticide, fungicide, those products will only cross the leaf barrier if they're in solution. If that spray droplet dries out or when that spray droplet dries out and now you've got dry chemicals sitting on the leaf, you have a very small chance of ever getting that chemical to enter into the leaf. Even if you get a lot of humidity or a dew the next morning, once your spray droplet dries up, it's just about game over for getting product into the leaf. We talk a lot about corn sorb or high fructose corn syrup as an adjuvant in our class acts, our destinies, our superbs. What does high fructose corn syrup do? What does corn sorb do? And it acts as a humectant, which is the big fancy nozzle head word for it delays the drying out time of a spray droplet. The longer we can keep that droplet wet on the plant leaf, the better chance we have of that herbicide or fungicide or whatever product we're spraying, the better chance we have of that actually soaking into the leaf. So a lot of times I feel like I get questions from applicators and growers like, God, do I really need that adjuvant? And are you just selling me that extra dollar an acre treatment just because it's easy money and I don't really know what it does and you say I need it and I don't know if you do or not? Well, no, it ain't just about how many ounces of Roundup you spray. It's about how many ounces of Roundup actually make it into the plant. And the best way to get herbicides into the plant are by having the right adjuvants, whether it's a water conditioner, an anti-drift, or a deposition aid, and the corn sorb to allow it to soak into the plant uh, as much as possible. I heard you mention laser at the Winfield United Spray Lab in River Falls, Wisconsin. Visiting there is a pretty impressive sight with seeing that they can do a three-step process that really helps 
build some of the best adjuvants in the marketplace because they can take the laser droplet particle analyzer and measure how much fines a particular adjuvant or tank mixture might produce. And you know, they can start with the bench chemistry and make sure that those things you know stay in solution and really get a good formulation, then move it to the laser. And then the third step that I've seen them do that's actually pretty rare in the industry is they actually go out and test that adjuvant in the field for spray efficacy. So say you've got a drift-reducing adjuvant out there, and it certainly reduces drift, but the, the third step to their process for developing adjuvants there is really about making sure that they measure it against herbicide efficacy. And when I look at the current commodity market, adjuvants is one of the places that people want to take a look at and see how they're cutting. So tell me a little bit about the adjuvant story. If I'm spending you know, $15 an acre on active ingredient, is adjuvants the right place to work some of the cost out of there and go back to bagged AMS? Or uh, to help me understand that a little bit. You bet. So uh, first of all, yeah, I would echo absolutely adjuvants are extremely important from our spray analysis system. We know that a flat fan nozzle can have upwards of 30% of your spray solution as driftable fines. That doesn't mean a flat fan nozzle is bad. You know, that's, I'm not trying to pick on flat fans. There's other nozzles, the T-Jet and some hypro nozzles can produce, or wilders as well, others can produce droplets that are in that 200 micron size. And for certain crop protection products, like the, the group 14 PPO inhibitor, burner herbicides, insecticides, fungicides, we need those small droplets for coverage. Okay, so you know you got to have that nozzle. The challenge then becomes how do I manage those fines? Because if I have up to 30% of my spray solution, you mentioned a $15 an acre crop protection cost of an application, 30% of 15 bucks, five bucks, that not only never makes it to my target to help with uh, the weed control or the insect control or whatever we're spraying, but also think of the off-target movement that could potentially, you know, cause problems. Or I think of uh, where I live in Montevideo on the western edge of the southern Minnesota sugar beet co-op, a lot of concern over the cercospora, the sugar beet leaf disease. Cercospora is resistant to the strobilurin fungicides. And I think about, boy, if we're using really high pressures and creating a lot of fog or a lot of fines where we're not even getting 30% of our spray to land on the target, that could be another potential reason why diseases, insects, weeds develop resistance or tolerance to crop protection products if we're only getting a reduced rate, if only two-thirds of what we're spraying actually gets to the target. Not using an adjuvant can further or speed up the process of a pest developing resistance to a crop protection product. Yeah, so you talked about herbicide resistance, and one of the pieces in the answer plots that I see a lot is we talk about rotating modes of action, but also using multiple modes of action. How are the weeds beating these resi- what are the resistance mechanisms? How are these weeds exactly winning the game from a plant physiology standpoint? Yep, so to build up to that, I do want to mention the takeactiononweeds.com website. Take Action on Weeds, a great resource. Not only do they list the different modes of action or sites of action for a lot of the popular chemistries. I put it in a nice chart. So if anyone isn't aware of that, I encourage you to go to their website and check that out. And that organization, which is a compilation of public universities, the basic chemical manufacturers, private industry, they do a lot of what you might call third-party, unbiased, independent research. And on the mode of action, they strongly recommend using a minimum of three modes of action in any crop situation. So irregardless of what crop you're planting, corn, soybeans, sugar beet, wheat, 
to really help defeat weeds and to get your question, how do we prevent weeds from developing resistance? It's using multiple modes of action and the Take Action on Weeds group. I had a nice study out I saw this winter where you know three modes of action per growing season is the magic number where it, with that many modes of action, you have an extremely small percentage chance of a weed developing resistance. Doesn't mean it can't happen or it certainly isn't impossible, but the chances are very small relative to, um, again, getting back to your question, how do these weeds, how do they develop resistance? Um, If we spray the same herbicide year after year after year, plants, weeds, one of their ways of survival in this world or the biology is to produce a lot of offspring. So we know the the Palmer amaranths, we've heard the stories of Palmer being able to produce upwards of a million seeds per plant. Common water hemp, upwards of two, three hundred thousand for the really big ones. Some weeds are a lot less. You know, lamb scores and ragweeds are more in the five to ten thousand range. But my point is, if you're a weed, you make thousands of seeds. And because the weed biology know, Mother Nature knows a large percentage of them are not going to survive. You look at human beings. I mean, we have two, three, four kids. You know, eight or ten offspring is a big family. Okay, we try to get all of our offspring to survive a fruitful life, a long life, right? Weeds. I mean, they make hundreds of thousands because they know the large percent of them are just going to die or not sprout or get eaten by wildlife, or whatever. So my point is. When you have hundreds of thousands of seeds in one year, it's very easy to have a genetic mutant or one of those or two of those seeds be exposed to a very small, non-lethal dose of a certain herbicide. Weeds are able to adapt and build up enough tolerance. If you wound them but don't kill them, it allows them to build up a tolerance. And um, the next year when they produce seed, um, you know, potentially be more tolerant and ultimately more resistant. So. The point is, using multiple modes of action, a minimum of three per growing season, is a great way to dramatically reduce the potential of one of those mutant seeds uh, developing resistance to a crop protection product, or specifically a herbicide. You've been listening to The Deal with Yield with Joel Whipperforth, Winfield United Ag Technology Applications Lead, and Mark Glady, Winfield United Regional Agronomist. For additional episodes of The Deal with Yield, visit iTunes, My Farm Radio, and thedealwithyield.com.